My name is Mike Rutledge, and I am uh, the Director of Arts, one of the teachers here. And we're in a four-week series. This is the third of four uh, that we've called In God We Trust. I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, sharing with you today. And uh, if you were here two weeks ago, Dave kicked off the series explaining to us and helping us understand the biblical principle of ownership, which is that every single thing you have was given to you by God, and everything you have is owned by God. And then the next week, he went on to say, therefore, let's talk about how we manage that, which is the, the you know, Bible word stewardship. How do we steward what he's given us? And then this week, we're going to dive into worship, and by worship, we're going to look at uh, sort of the pitfalls and dangers of uh, loving money. And the reason it's worship is because whatever your heart has, that's what you worship. All day long, every day, we're worshiping all kinds of stuff. And money is no, you know, not exempt from that. And um, I think that uh, what I want us to do today is to try and get a, a bigger uh, vision for what could happen if we were all to align our thoughts and our hearts with what the Bible teaches in terms of godly management of our money and our possessions. And at the heart of this topic, I think, is a need for us to get our arms around the concept of enough, right? Enough. And here in America, that's kind of an interesting thing. You know, all too often, I, I go eat somewhere or eat at home, whatever, and I sit down at the table, and I get up, and I'm, I'm not full. I'm sick because I've eaten too much, right? Thanksgiving Day, you, you all know this. And then sometimes I, I eat because there's food. I'm not even hungry, but I just eat, Right? Uh, or you go to the restaurant. This one, you know, I, the, you go and you order, and they bring the big, huge plate. And my mom always told me, you're not excused till you finish everything on your plate. After all, they're the professionals. They know what the appropriate size of food is because they put it on the plate. So I'm just doing what I should do and, you know, eating what's in front of me. So, uh, but it, the truth is, we're actually, many of our health woes are tied to uh, eating above and beyond what we need, right? We, we actually have problems associated with having too much. And um, as, as I was, uh, you know, oh, we'll say this to you. Ever, you, know, you go, you get home, you're ready to eat, and like, I'm starving. Well, not really. Oh, I'm dying of hunger. Nope, <laughs> not even close. And... Um, is, as I was preparing for this message, I came across some pretty interesting information that I want to share with you today. And I'm going to throw a lot of stats at you today just to help us understand where things are. But this one is a little disturbing, and I apologize in advance if you are a, a Hardee's or Carl's Jr. fan. But I discovered this, that the Hardee's Monster Thick Burger is two-thirds of a pound. It is 1,420 calories. 107 grams of fat, add fries and a Coke, you're topping out at over like 2,200 calories for the day, which exceeds your daily, you know, as people tell you, you should eat this much. That's beyond what you should eat. You're doing it in one meal, and you've probably doubled your fat grams that you're supposed to intake in a day. Uh, unless you're on one of these new diets, I, you can tell I'm not really all that concerned about diets, but so be it, you know, all these keto and all this kind of stuff. But the truth is, people around the world are dying from hunger, and America tends to be eating itself to death. 
We're getting, you know, cholesterol problems and blood pressure problems and diabetes and all these problems that are associated with our eating beyond what we need. And uh, thank goodness, though, for 7-Eleven, because they figured out how to quench our thirst, right? They came out with the big gulp. So it's not just hunger, it's thirst. They came out with a big gulp, and the big gulp was originally 32 ounces, but very quickly they caught on to the fact that that is not enough. And then they came out with the super big gulp, which was 44 ounces, clearly still not enough. Therefore, the extreme gulp, 53 ounces, onto the double gulp. Well, obviously, big gulp was 32. Double gulp was 64 ounces. And then they finally dialed it in exactly how much we need is the team gulp. 128 ounces, one gallon of thirst-quenching carbonation and corn syrup. And I'm not really sure how the team gulp works because honestly, I've never actually seen a team of people around the big gulp cup with their straws in it. I think that's probably misbranded. But nonetheless, the faulty belief that I believe we embrace is that if one ounce of something is good, two ounces is twice as good. If one pair of shoes is good, four pairs of shoes is four times as good, and so on and so forth, right? But the truth is that the same is true with our mindset around money. We have a scarcity mentality where we, we tell ourselves that we don't have enough uh, to be happy, we don't have enough to be content. We don't have enough to be generous, for sure. And, uh, you know, so we start thinking thoughts like, well, a little more would be a little better, and a lot more would be a lot better. But money isn't really a bad thing. Let's understand that. We have to deal with it all day, every day. To live here in America, you can't escape from money. But, well, it's not a bad thing. It's a terrible God. Very, very terrible God. And uh, the actual problem is not the amount we make. It's just that we become obsessed with having more and more of it. And so, you've probably heard the saying, in God we trust, all others pay cash. But the question I have, and it's actually printed on our money, in God we trust, the question I have is, do we honestly trust in God? And the reason I wonder that is because you may not know this, but about a third of the parables that Jesus taught in the Gospels. One-third of them deal with money and how to manage it. And uh, in the Gospel, 288 verses in the Gospels alone, that's about one-tenth of the, of the verses, deal with our possessions and our money. And then 500 verses in the Bible talk about prayer, less than 500 about faith, and 2,000 talk about our money and our possessions. Yet, in spite of all this, claiming in God we trust, we still tr struggle to follow the word of God and follow the biblical principles that has been have been laid out for us in terms of how to manage our money. So uh, one magazine that I read, uh, how many of you guys know Relevant Magazine? Anyone in here? Not very many. Um, but it's a really cool magazine, and it sort of examines where culture and faith intersect. And they talk about all kinds of cool stuff. And I, I found uh, these, these two articles that were published in Relevant Magazine over the last couple of years. The first was called, Not Having Enough Isn't an Excuse Not to Tithe. And again, tithing, as we said even in our quiz, tithing is, literally means 10%, right? Giving back 10%. And K2, we are a tithing church. We are a tithing church, and we believe wholeheartedly in that principle. Uh, 
But the other article that they published was one called, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? And they discovered some very, very unnerving uh, statistics and facts. The first one I want to hit you with is this, that while 247 million Americans, almost 250 million Americans identify as Christians, yet only 1.5 million Americans tithe. Okay, so 250, 1.5, that's about 0.6%, not even one full percent of those who identify as Christians tithe. But it goes on to say that uh, tithers make up 10 to 25%. Our church is at 20, which is, is you know, right in the average there, actually on the t- high end of average. Let me ask you something, though. When you come to K2 and you talk to someone and you tell them to go to K2, people know they've heard of K2 before. And my desire, my goal, and we'll share some of these statistics in a minute, would be that K2 would be known not just for its name, but for its generosity and the leaders in changing the Salt Lake Valley with our generosity and our faithfulness to God. Another statistic, only 5% of the U.S. tithes with 80% of Americans giving 2% of their income. And this one is really fascinating for anyone who says, I don't have enough to tithe, that Christians are only giving at 2.5% per capita. So people give 2.5%, while during the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. So we're moving in the wrong direction. And what I want to do, let me ask you a question here, and I want you to not answer out loud, but just answer in your head, and I want you to literally come up with a number. If I was to ask you, how wealthy would you have to be to say, I, I can tithe without, without worrying about it, I'll never think about it, I'll just do it. Like, if you were in the top 30% of the richest people in the world, top 50%, pick a number in your head, and let me show you some interesting statistics here. If you make 125 thousand dollars as a family, two adults, three children, you would be in the top 2.2 richest people in the world with 28 times the global average. Well, what would happen if you tithed or gave 10% of your money away? Where would that put you? You'd still be in the top 2.8 and you'd still have an income that is 25 times the global average. Well, I know that that's a big number, 125000 so let's strip it back. Let's look at, what if you made $20,000, just you, and you didn't have a family to worry about? What would happen? Oh, and I forgot a statistic here. Can you go back to the next one? This is really interesting, because this comes from a website called Giving What We Can, where it's, it's a website that evaluates different charities around the world, and it gives you all kinds of options of who you could donate to. If you were that person who made $125,000 and you gave 10% of it to the charities, you could buy 1,984 insecticide-treated bed nets, uh, over 10,000 of those treatments, that's for a parasite, and you, that would be the equivalent to saving two lives per year that you gave. So in the next 20 years, you could save 20, oh no, 40 lives. Now let's go back to this 20,000, one person earning 20,000, they would be in the top 7.7, top 8% with 14 times the global average, if they gave 10% of their money away, where would they be? They would be in the top 9%, still averaging 13 times what the rest of the world makes. And what would be the net effect? Adding 20 years of healthy living per year to others. 
You see, we have to understand that how we manage our money is not just for ourselves. And we're here on earth, and we actually have within our pockets the ability to make significant, significant impact. And I understand that numbers like this can invoke guilt, which is not my point. I do not want you to feel guilty, but I do want you to see what would happen if we gave. And according to these these articles I was telling you about, if the church tithed, we would have an additional $165 billion with a B dollars the churches could use and distribute. The net effect would be this. We could take $25 billion from that surplus and we could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. We could take $12 billion more. We could eliminate illiteracy for five years and people could learn on their own. They could advance uh, their own careers and be able to understand the world around them. We could take 15 more billion and we could solve the world's water crisis, especially in the areas of the world where people live on less than $1 a day. And then we could take another billion, we could fully fund all overseas mission work, and here's the kicker. Then we would have between 100 and 120, or $110 billion left that we could distribute for additional ministry expansion. How many of you would like to see a world there was, where there was no one dying of starvation? How many of you would like to see a world where no one was dying of preventable diseases? See, you have that power. We have that power in our pockets today. But we have to get on board with what God tells us is the proper way to manage our money. Well, here's the good news about this. We're not the first people who've had to sort this out. And the Bible talks a lot about how to manage our money in a godly, healthy, good-for-you-and-good-for-me kind of way. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage, a few passages this morning. I'm going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And it says this. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit." Now, this passage talks a lot about the dangers associated with loving money. And it starts by saying, if you love money or if you love wealth, what's going to happen? You'll never have enough and you'll never be satisfied. That's the big gulp monster thick burger effect, right? If a quarter pound burger is good, a two-thirds burger is whatever the math is better. If five grams of fat is good, 107 is whatever that is better, right? And you're never satisfied. You you can't have enough. And what happens when you're not satisfied? You keep striving and you keep going to the same means to fill a need or desire that you have. And when it comes to finances, the tendency is to what? Incur much debt. Because I need these things. I need to spend on this. And then I burden myself with debt. Then it goes on to say, in verse 11, 
As goods increase, so do those who consume. What does that mean? That means that the more that's out there, the more we want, right? You've all gone phone shopping, and the guy goes, well, this is a 3G phone, but this is a 4G phone. I'm like, 4G? I need an extra G. How can I live, how can I live with only 3Gs? I don't even really know what the G is, but it's more, right? So I spend $100 more on the G. I don't really notice any difference. Or, or you, you know, the buy one, get one 50% off, right? You go to the store, and you're like, well, hey, did you know it's buy one, get one 50% off? No. So you go back to the rack, and you're like, well, I don't really like this shirt, but it's 50% off, so now I get two. You go home, and you pull it out, and you're like, I don't really want to wear this. I don't like it. And then three months later, you're like, well, this goes in the giveaway bag, and you take it to Goodwill, <laughs> right? My wife and I, whenever we go shopping, we're like, let's have the talk. Remember, we're getting the basic package. No matter what they offer, we don't budge. That works about 12% of the time. Because as goods increase, so do those who consume. Then, very interestingly, it says, their abundance permits them no sleep. What does that mean? It means we develop, literally develop physical sicknesses and illnesses associated with our unhealthy relationship with money and debt. And these uh, guys at Ohio State University uh, created this thing called the Debt Stress Index, and it's a scale of 0 to 80, how much stress affected us. And what we need to understand is that stress radically affects more than just your wallet, more than just your bank account, more than just your money. And look at this. The first thing they found is that there are health issues, dramatic health issues that arrive from, from debt stress. They found that migraines, back problems, ulcers, heart problems, and other debilitating effects were positively associated with debt stress, right? These physical conditions became manifestations as a result of debt. But it goes on to say this, it's not gender neutral either on this scale that goes from 0 to 180. It found that women were 50 points more affected by stress. Fascinating. And then... It goes on to say this, this makes sense if there's stress in your life, if there's sickness in your life, that 45% of the participants in this study said that it affected their family life. Their stress affected their family life. And even more fascinating to me, 22% of the people in the study said it, it affected their job performance. Understand that when we are insatiable around our finances and we don't follow godly principles and we allow bad stuff to happen in our life, it doesn't just affect your pocketbook. But the verse goes on. But wait, there's more. It says, verse 13, I've seen a grievous evil. A grievous evil. And what does that mean? That means that when we fall in love with money, we compromise our values and our ethics to do things that we probably wouldn't do otherwise to meet the perceived need that we have. And the solution to that is more. Remember Enron, right? To the tune of $78 billion, this massive accounting fraud wiped out a company. And then uh, Bernie Madoff with his Ponzi scheme, $65 billion dollars was stolen from someone. See, these, this is what happens on a smaller to larger scale. We compromise the values and the ethics that we have because we love something and we pursue it with all of our heart. But the interesting thing, then it goes on to say that wealth is hoarded to the harm of its owners. Even in the Bertie Madoff thing, right? He, $65 billion, he steals from people, but what happened? He got caught and he was sentenced to 
150 years in jail, guess what? He will never see a single cent of benefit from his illegal activity and his very lucrative financial gain because wealth was hoarded to the harm of its owner. And then in verse 14, it says, and wealth lost through some misfortune. Remember around 2000, the dot-com crash? People had money invested in these dot-com things, and it crashed, and people lost all kind of money. 2008, the financial crisis hit, and people had investments and retirements, and things crashed, and people lost money. Or maybe in your family, you've had a medical crisis that you had to come out of pocket on and just drained your bank account. Or even maybe you've been, stolen, been embezzled from or stolen from. See, the point is that we don't really have as much control as we'd like to think we do when it comes to our finances. It can be gone in a second because of our own mismanagement. It can be gone in a second because of someone else doing something or because of the natural circumstances of a life cycle. So that's the Old Testament. So what does the New Testament have to say? And I'd love to pop forward to 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, which is sort of the New Testament equivalent of this same passage. And it says this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's what we find in this passage. It repeats everything we've talked about in Ecclesiastes, but it adds one other thing. And it's not an insignificant thing. It's actually an eternal thing. It says that the love of money has driven people to potentially walk away and wander from their faith. Don't miss what he's saying here. That we have confused our money with God. In God we trust, no, in money we trust. And in addition to all the stuff we talked about, the health issues and the family issues and all, all of that, we've replaced the inscription of in God we trust with in money we trust. And that switch causes us to be pierced with many griefs, as it says, because our hearts don't really cry out for more money. Our hearts cry out to be satisfied, and the only thing that can really satisfy is, is the maker who knows what we really want. So we try and fill ourselves up with cash, and the only solution is to continue needing more because it's not really meeting our needs, and then our souls continue to crave, and that equals more debt, and then more debt means we compromise values, and we lose friendships, and we lose relationships, and then we actually even lose spouses because one of the leading killers of marriages is financial It says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The reason we can't serve both, both is because they're at odds with each other, and you have to pick and choose. Are you going to serve what money asks you for, or are you going to serve the God who provides for you? And you may not know this, uh, but we have different money languages. You've heard of the four love languages and things like that. There, there, there are the five love languages. There's a thing called the, the four money languages. It's very, very interesting. It's by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Doyle, and he's a financial psychologist. I don't know. Think about that for a second, a financial psychologist. I don't know if he has dollar bills laying on his couch or whatever. But anyway, um, 
he discovered that there are mainly four different kind of money languages, all right? And I'm going to tell them to you. As I'm telling you these, I want you to think, try and find yourself and see which one of these you are. And first thing I want to say, this is just a way we view money. It's not right or wrong, better or worse. It's just a way. So if I held up a $20 bill, you'd all see $20, but you would think that it represented something else. And the first is the driver. Maybe you're a driver. The driver views money as a means to success. I feel successful and I feel self-esteem when I have more money. The more money I have, the more successful I am. The problem that they find that can, be, uh, that can occur in drivers is that drivers become overly dependent on money for what? Self-esteem. So if I don't have enough money, I'm not successful, therefore I don't, I don't have good self-esteem. Maybe you're a driver or maybe you're an amiable. Now, amiable uses money to show love and focus affection on others, right? So I, I, I use what I have to help you feel loved and to feel loved in this relationship. Maybe that's you. The problem with that one is that we can fall into the trap of if we don't have enough money, we're not able to what? Love others. So maybe you're a driver, maybe you're an amiable, or maybe you're an analytic an analytic views money as security and the ability to ward off chaos in your life, right? I, I, ah, I've got enough money to feel secure. The problem with, that can occur with the analytic is that sometimes, actually quite often, people who hang around with analytics feel less important than the money the analytic has. So maybe you're a driver, maybe you're an amiable, maybe you're an analytic, or the fourth one is you're expressive. And the expressive views money as the way to feel accepted, validated, and respected. If I have money, people will accept me and respect me for who I am. And the problem there is obvious. If I don't have enough, I don't have respect. I don't feel validated. I don't feel accepted. Now, again, nothing wrong with how you view money. You do have to be careful how it expresses itself. But let me just point out one thing. The the one commonality in all four of those views is that they serve a self-focus, right? It helps me feel accepted. It helps me feel accomplished. It helps me feel like I can love people. And again, good things in those. But if we become dependent on our money to meet our needs, then we're falling for the Ecclesiastes 5 and the First Timothy 6 trap which says loving money leads to bad stuff, all right? And so what I want to do as we close here, I just want to share two things with you. The first is the problem. The second is solution, and I thought of them so they're really, really, really simple. Okay, so the first is this. What, what is the actual problem? The problem is this, clearly stated, I love money more than God. I love money more than God. That's a problem. And I want to make sure we understand that money is not the issue. Having lots of money is not the issue. Having too little money is not the issue. My, my money language is not the issue. All of these can be problems, but the issue is loving money more than God. Timothy 6, again, or 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of what? All kinds of evil. It leads in a bad way. If we, if we fall in love with money, we chase it down. It creates bad stuff. And I want to look at a parable that Jesus taught that demonstrates this 
person in kind of kind of in the flesh. Here's here's a, here's a picture of what <coughs> of what someone who loves money more than God looks like. This is in uh, Luke 12, and it goes like this. Then he told him a parable. He said, the land of a certain rich man produced good crops. So he began to think to himself, what should I do? Since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build bigger ones, and then I'll store all my grain and goods in them, and I'll say to myself, you've stored up plenty of good things, For many years, take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God told him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded back from you. Now, who will get the things you've accumulated? And that's how it is with a person who stores up treasures for himself rather than with God. Don't miss this. He's saying, we've confused this life with eternity. He stores up his whole life to serve himself, and then he dies. And all that he worked for, all that he worked to provide for himself meant nothing because no Brinks truck was following his hearse to heaven. Let me, let me just, re- I wanna, let me do this. I'm going to read this a different way. I'm going to leave out a few words as I read this and see if you can figure out what, what the point of this whole parable is, okay? Himself, I, I, my, I'll, I'll, my, I'll, my, I'll, Myself, I've, yourself. Okay, here's a little Bible reading trick. When you're reading something and you see something repeated over and over and over, guess what? Trying to make a point. And the point in this parable is what? Here is a guy who did not embrace what we've talked about for the last two weeks. They did not embrace ownership as what he had was God's, and he did not embrace stewardship as that he's given me to manage for him for kingdom good. And it says he invested in this life, not the afterlife. He invested in himself and not others. Matthew 16 says it this way. What profit will a man, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Don't miss it. He's saying we've confused our bodies with our souls. Our lives with the eternal and our money with God. So here's a guy who every penny that came in was for himself. He had to figure out how I can advance myself with more money. He lost it all. So let's look at the solution. The solution is equally simple. I love God more than money, actually more than anything. And I want you to imagine a place, you know, we talked about all these statistics of what could happen if people tithed faithfully and how we could affect this world dynamically and problems would cease and the world would be a more beautiful place. I want you to imagine that. And what's really interesting as we talk about this, I I found a passage actually in Acts that talks sort of about this very place. And it's in the beginning of Acts. And if you don't know much about this book, Acts is sort of the historical account of the spread of Christianity. And uh, in the first chapters, so Jesus Christ has died, he's resurrected into heaven, and he's appointed the apostles to take on the leadership of growing the church and ministering and sharing the gospel around the area they were, and, you know, and, and 
you know, the Mediterranean Rim, and then expanding beyond that, taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Miracles are happening. People are coming to Christ in droves, and one day 3,000 people accept Christ. And this is kind of what's happening in this time. And so understand, this is no small movement. 3,000 people in a day is pretty significant. So many, 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 many people are finding Christ a new life and great things happening, Okay. Then we come across this passage at the end of chapter 4 in Acts, and it says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all, there were no needy persons among them. How many? None. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I know 10% can feel like a lot of money, but these people said, now 10% is not enough. See, they had a greater vision of the ownership of what they had. God had given them something to steward for the good of who? everyone, and they would sell things and give it so that other people's needs could be met. They understood stewardship. They understood ownership, and it revolutionized the community. Again, 3,000 people in one day, so I can't even imagine what the numbers were that they were serving, and not a single person had a need. And this is what God calls us to, and he says, this can happen, but we have to embrace what I tell you about managing your money in a godly, healthy, good-for-others kind of way. But we have to be careful not to confuse our bodies with our souls. Don't confuse your life with eternity. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close this morning. Again, I want you to hear my heart on this one. I know I, th- th- this, again, this kind of information, uh, if if can, can create guilt, and I, I want you to understand it from the bottom of my heart, that is not what I want you to be hearing. I do not want you to be feeling guilty. But I want you to catch a vision of what God calls us to and the reason he calls us to and the transformation that could happen in this place, right here in Salt Lake City today. If we would embrace the godly principles of managing and stewarding his money for the good of those around us, And I believe with all my heart, I'm telling you this, because God desires to bless your life. And I'm not saying prosperity. I'm not saying dollar for dollar. But I will tell you this, that if you want to live under the umbrella of God's blessing in your life, you will never achieve that unless you live under the umbrella of his direction in your life. You can't receive the blessing by living counter to what he calls us to. And understand that your obedience in how you manage your money affects everyone. Every person in the world is affected by your faithfulness with your finances. So as I like to say, I've heard another pastor, Robert Moore,